Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus. It's a great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. This is the final episode of what we're calling Genesis and Exodus, the story of us. And I'll say some more about that in just a minute. But we are trying to make all these Jericho Road podcasts interactive. And so if you have any questions, you can email me at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. And I'll try to incorporate your questions in future episodes. And hey, even if we're leaving Genesis and Exodus, still some of your questions because it all hangs. I hope you've noticed that I'm using the first two books of our Bible to go everywhere in scripture. And we're going to do that today as well. Uh, so um, I want to tell you that as we finish the book of Exodus, we're going to sort of finish it quickly because nearly one third of the book actually involves the building of a tabernacle. And it's very detailed. Uh, you might even find it hard reading if you just sit at home and, and reading scripture and trying to read it maybe front to front to finish, which is awfully heroic. But some things in the Bible are just plain hard to read. And this is one of them. Uh, lots of details about a complex uh, involved involving a tent and a lampstand and priestly vestments and sacrifices and an altar and a fence around it. And then, of course, a holy of holies with an ark inside uh, holding the tablets of the law. Uh, the lots of detail on how to build it and what it means. Well, last week we learned that the Ten Commandments themselves are a little hard to find in the Bible because they're embedded within a story, making an important point, right? That the law and everyday life are the same thing. Well, the building of the tabernacle is also true. The building of the tabernacle is also embedded within a story and it's a response to a specific problem. Now, I want to take just a second and read a few verses of Exodus chapter 32 with you, uh, and it'll be on the screen that you can read along, but I'm going to read Exodus 32 verses 1 through 14 to show you the problem that the tabernacle addresses or the tabernacle solves and why the last third of the book is dedicated to this, to this tent, okay? So let's, let's read Exodus 32 beginning with verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he's on the mountain receiving the law from God. He hasn't come down to address them yet. The people gathered around Aaron, his brother, and said to him, come make gods for us, little g gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off all the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast the image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. Can you imagine how quickly they've forgotten, how quickly they've turned not only onto Moses, uh, but have forgotten what God has done for them. It's, it's a breathtaking uh, turn of events. We'll keep going. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once, your people 
whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. God is already distancing himself from these slaves. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may not burn hot against them and I may consume them and you will, and I will make you a great nation, So he said. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out there to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Oh, turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised and I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster he had planned to bring on his people. Before we talk about the problem in the tabernacle, maybe that's a good lesson in the power of intercessory prayer. Uh, God wants a relationship with his children, which means he wants us to talk to him. And sometimes that talking can be pleading, and sometimes that talking can be yelling. Uh, Just remember that God knows what's on our hearts, and we can be honest in our dialogue and in our pain and in our fears and in our wants, and, and, and we can pray for God to turn it around. Because if scripture tells us anything, is, it, is that our relationship is a dialogue, not between, not between some static laws of the universe that are just are simply fixed, but a God who knows us and loves us and is watching us, even as stiff-necked as we are. But that's not the lesson for today. Okay, we, we know that part, right? Uh, maybe we'll come back to that again. No, the problem is that they built a golden calf. Now, I talked about this last week, and I've talked about this in prior uh, episodes of the podcast, but let's remember what the golden calf means. The golden calf, Baal, is a rain god, and there will always be a temptation to build a rain god. And what I mean by that is if you're living in the desert, you'll build a rain god. If you're living in Birmingham, Alabama, you'll, you'll build a different kind of god. There's always a temptation to hedge our bets. There's always a temptation to lowball our expectations. There's always a temptation to go with what we know or go with what we control. It may not be a golden calf. It might just be a portfolio. That's a problem. However, Exodus chapter 32 points to an even bigger problem if you want to go up a few more thousand feet, and that's the the tension that begins way back in Genesis chapter 12 and takes us to the end of this sequel to the book of Genesis. The bigger problem is this. All the stories in the Bible from page 1 to 1001 are the same story. Will you be different in the way that God asks us to be different, or are you just going to be something else? Only two kind of people. You're going to be different in the way that God asks you to be different, or are you going to be like everybody else? And in the case of Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham stepped out under a night sky, and he said, yes, I will leave the city behind, and I will walk with you. And if, and if I walk in your steps, and if I trust you, I believe that you will lead me home, and my dreams will come true, which and a kid and land to give it to is all that he ever wanted. And God said, I'll do you one better. Look at the stars of the sky. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars above your head, and Abraham promised to be different. But here's the rub. He makes the promise in Genesis chapter 15. 
promise doesn't come true, the child, until Genesis chapter 21. That's a long time walking. So, God has to remind Abraham again and again that he's near, that he's near. In Exodus chapter 32, they too are falling away because they can't see. So God gives them a tabernacle to be present with them in a new reality. God will travel with them in a tabernacle. Uh, There's a picture of a model I put together last year for the children for for Sunday school. I actually bought it in Israel, and it's a model of the tabernacle. And honestly, I took the picture about halfway finished. Darn, that thing was hard. It took a year to build the tabernacle. Uh, Hello, the model was sort of built on on the last third of the book of Exodus, and I had to thread all these little uh, posts and, and put all these little tents together and all these little pictures of all the tribes of Israel and this little lampstand and sheep. And oh my gosh, it took forever, Uh, which is is kind of what you see when you try to read the last part of the book of Exodus. And and so it kind of begs a question, why is all this stuff so important, right? Why all these uh, details? Well, it's important. The tabernacle was important. It was important to get it right. And it was important to follow God's plan because the tabernacle was going to change the way that they saw God, which is from an occasional appearance in a cloud, right? Or in a pillar of fire or a dream or an oracle, right? The, the tabernacle was going to represent for them a change from an occasional appearance from God in the wilderness to the ongoing presence of God in the wilderness. And that is very, very important. In the book of 1 Samuel, uh, in our Old Testament, we're told that the ark and the tabernacle, after it came into the promised land and traveled through wars and journeys and 40 years of mayhem, it came to rest at a place called Shiloh on the top of a hill. Later Jewish teachers would say that it rested on this hill for 369 years of God's presence dwelling in a tent on the hill. The next picture that I want to show you, it looks like a pile of rocks. It just occurred to me, I take terrible pictures. I'm really the worst picture taker. Even though iPhones are great cameras, I take such bad pictures that my pictures are just great for podcasts because you can't see them. Uh, So you're looking at a pile of rocks and you're thinking, wow, Rich, that's really interesting. But actually, let me tell you what it is. That pile of rocks is an altar from the tabernacle. That pile of rocks is the altar in front of the Holy of Holies of God. That pile of rocks is where the priest Eli served and made sacrifices and where the boy Samuel, who later became the great prophet, served. The boy Samuel stood right where I'm standing in front of that pile of rocks that was the altar. And on a windy February day in the hilltop of Shiloh, uh, my pally Don, who took me to the place, left me alone, and I stood there as a priest of God's church in front of an altar. And I felt a connection, it's hard to describe, but I felt a connection between that first altar and our altar at St. Luke's, the altar of God where we remember the ultimate and final sacrifice for us, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, ending once and for all the chasm between God uh, and his people. And, and this altar is a reminder of 
our ongoing relationship and God's ongoing presence with us. Whatever happened then uh, continues today in our churches. So the tabernacle is a pretty darn important story, even though it's hard to read. But in addition to the presence of God, there's another important reminder here, okay? And, and this, is, this is where I want you to grab a piece of notepaper and a pen. So if, if you hadn't gotten that ready yet, I think you're gonna wanna write this down. So grab some scratch, put it, in, put it in your Bible along with your timeline because the second point about the tabernacle is this. The tabernacle would be different in the way that God asked them to be different, Remember, the stories of the Bible are all the same. You're going to be different, you'll be something else. The tabernacle itself is different. And I want to take just a moment, if you've got a piece of scratch, I want you to make two columns. And I want you to put tabernacle on one side and golden calf on the other. So let's compare and contrast a tabernacle and a golden calf. So first of all, remember that they're both embedded in the same story. First thing, the tabernacle is God's initiative. The details, the instructions, what to do with it, how to carry it around, how to, const- how, to, how to throw it up, how to break it down, how to leave. All that is God's instructions, God's intention. The, the golden calf, human initiative. Just let's do it. I, I, let's think it up as we go along. Aaron, in a moment of weakness, trying to please the people and, and not, not standing firm uh, with, with his brother Moses in, in an attempt to just get everybody off his back, sort of made something up on the fly. That's what golden calves do. Golden calves reach the limit of our imagination. The, the tabernacle comes from God's imagination, okay? How about this? Tabernacle is a place for voluntary giving. It's a place for them to bring their first fruits, the first fruits of their herds uh, so that they could sacrifice. Um, uh, Aaron, if you noticed in the story of Exodus chapter 32, he demands gold. Give me all your earrings. Get all those earrings off the children and put them in here, boil them up, make a calf. You see, it's, it's, it's a demanding thing. You know, our, you know, our petty gods, they demand things of us. Whereas God waits for us to give us his heart. See, there's a difference. This is how, this is, you can be different, you can be something else. This is how God is different. Notice if you, if you want to spend some time reading the last, literally from, from Exodus 21 to the end, right? The last third of Exodus. You're going to see painstaking detail uh, when it comes to just every little stitch, every little stone, every little thread uh, of the tabernacle. With golden calves, they're not a plan. That there's not a plan. They threw that thing up in a day and had a party. Okay, and that's, that's what, right? Golden calves uh, are petty gods, the, the things that distract us. That's, that's the belly. That just, that's the instant gratification. Um, you also will learn when you read, related to the painstaking detail, a lengthy building process. Kind of like it t- taken me a year to build the model of the tabernacle for the children and kind of wishing I hadn't done it. Um, but the golden calf was made quickly, as I've said, just thrown up in a day. The, goal, the, the tabernacle, rather, was also built with a holy of holies in the middle to safeguard the holiness of God. There's a place where no ordinary human could simply enter at any time, right? Only the high priest and only certain times of the year. The golden calf, immediate accessibility. We do not tread lightly before the altar of the holy one. Golden calves, psh, get your hands on me anytime you want. Um, how about this one? The tabernacle was to remind them of the invisible God. Golden calf, that's a visible God. You just, 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 just gin that one up. Remember last episode, we talked about even the trees represented golden calves, so they had petty gods everywhere. 
Finally, and probably most importantly, is that the tabernacle would travel with them to remind them of a personal relationship with an active God. Golden calves, just an impersonal object. Now, we might be tempted to think that the tabernacle is a story just for them and not for us, all this detail and, and, and something that was built a long time ago and far, far away that doesn't exist anymore. But we do have our own impulses. We have our own metaphors. We have our own loves. We have our own story here at St. Luke's. You know, one day we're going to come back to the real world. This pandemic will be over and we will return. And one of the one of the most delightful rhythms that we have here is Saturday morning. I love to come up to St. Luke's on Saturday morning and, and check mail and check on everybody. And then I go back in the sacristy behind me, which is just a little holy room where our altar guild teams meet on Saturday morning and they're laughing and they're visiting and we're talking about the concerns of the day and they're polishing brass and they're pressing linens and they give it such detail because they do everything the same again and again and linen linens are pressed just so, and you may not know this, but on our altar, there's always a beautiful white cloth with five crosses for the five wounds of Christ, and it's centered on the altar, and nobody can see. You can't see from the pews all the detail that goes into the worship of Almighty God or the spotless silver. You can't see uh, all the the intricate uh, needlework and all the care and the quality of the materials that go into this. You can't see it, but God can. God can see and God smiles. And so we polish brass and we delight in the Lord. And it's the same story as the end of the book of Exodus. But I want us to always remember there will always be a tension in our life and faith. Will we be different or will we be something else? Because we too can forget and they would forget again. Okay, One of the most important, this is something you want to write down, one of the most important passages of Scripture that nobody ever talks about is 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with the fourth verse. I know that's specific and obscure. I'm going to read it to you in just a minute. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 through 9. Okay, let me me explain what it is, then we'll read it to you, and I'll tell you why it's really, really, really important. Um, We're told by later Jewish teachers that, that the ark of the tabernacle would sit in shallow for 369 years. Uh, In time, we talked about this last week, the ark would be uh, captured in battle and then through fits and starts, David would get it back and he would put it in his newly instituted capital city. Now, do you remember the tension between Genesis 1 through 11 and then the rest of the Bible? The Genesis 1 through 11 is a poetic rendering of our fall from the garden into, into cities, and it's not a good thing. It's not an upgrade. Uh, Abraham was asked to leave a city. What, what's wrong with cities? Cities, cities don't move. Cities, cities are static. Uh, cities don't trust. Cities are, are tempted to fall uh, prey to, to petty gods. With the city, you have stratification. You've got one king, lots of slaves. With the city, you have war. With the city, you have unjust injustice. And so God asked Abraham to leave the city and be a different kind of humanity. This is The Bible is a remarkably intelligent uh, piece of writing, even though it comes from a different time. Uh, the, the thoughts, the, the concepts are all... Uh, sociological and and scientific and psychologically sound. I mean, the people living in the Bible are the same as us living today, just with different tools and and a different context, but it's, it's all the same. And so 
God is wary of cities, and yet David is the greatest king that they ever had. He didn't want them to have kings either, because kings would lead to cities, but he, Samuel gave in, said, you don't want to do it, and so they started with Saul, which didn't work out too well, and I've talked about Saul in a different episode of all this, but then we talked about David, who was the greatest one they probably ever had, more land, more unified, and now with a newly built capital city in Jerusalem. And so David is on top of his game, and all he wants to do is do something really nice for God back. So he gives God, or he attempts to give God a gift that God doesn't want. Uh, he He has a thought, and he goes, I think I'll build God a temple. Tabernacle was nice, but hey, maybe the, maybe the tent was getting a little faded. Maybe the, right, maybe the gold threads were getting a little worn. Uh, maybe the tabernacle just didn't look fancy enough uh, for a fancy king like David with a big army. So his idea that he's going to build God a house, he's going to build him a big house. Prophet Nathan uh, comes to, to David after God kind of gives Nathan the word. Prophet Nathan says this to uh, David, and this is God's word to the king, because this is what prophets do. They speak truth uh, to kings. And so this is God's word to David about that temple that he wants to build. Build. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel to Egypt. In this day, I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. What we've been talking about this morning. Whenever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, quote, why have you not built me a house of cedar? No. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep to be a prince over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, but not your house. From that day forward, God would whisper to his people, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. David would not build the house. Solomon would build the house and it would be a great burden upon God's people. It cost too much money. It caused resentment. It eventually caused the kingdom to split into 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, Judah in the south, Israel in the north, all because of the temple. It's all because of of jealousy and money. And then the temple would be in the crosshairs of every foreign army that would want to take it. And suddenly they were having to defend it. And eventually the Babylonians would destroy it 600 years before Jesus' birth. And they would be taken away to exile which, by the way, Genesis and Exodus are the stories of hope given to people living in in a faraway land with the temple taken away. See, they thought that maybe God would not be with them anymore if they didn't have a house, and then God calls a prophet named Ezekiel to remind them that he was even with them way out there. But eventually, they go home from exile, and they try to rebuild, but they don't have a lot of money, and it's just not that very nice. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about that, that sad time, time, lamentations. This is that sad kind of rebuilding time. And then they would be conquered again, and they'd be conquered again, and they'd be conquered again until about 60 years uh, before Jesus' birth would come the Romans. And then with the Romans would come a client king uh, named Herod, who was so uh, fanciful in his building projects and such a successful 
fundraiser for the Romans that he would be given a title that only he alone could keep, which would be king of the Jews, which would only be repeated on a dark day when a sign would hang above Jesus' head. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In time, Herod would build God a house again. Uh, grand, more grand uh, than the one that Solomon built. It would be the wonder of the ancient world. Let me show you a slide. This slide is a model of the temple of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, which would be this third iteration of the temple. We call it the second temple, but it's really Herod's temple. So you had the temple temple that was destroyed, the one they built when they came back home from Babylon, and then you've got this rebuilt, remodeled, uh, massive building in a time when people never saw anything tall. Uh, The spires of the temple were higher than the current Dome of the Rock today on the Temple Mount. And I got to tell you, if you've ever seen it, it's pretty impressive, even in its half-destructed form. And now you look in, and if you look at the slide, carefully I've done some drawing on it the circle the circle uh, is is around a rock right outside the city wall called Golgotha now I grew up with the hymn on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross that could mean on a hill far away meaning Israel's a far away from here and that's true but also if you noticed we've all got in our minds on a hill far away that Golgotha was a rugged windswept grassy knoll somewhere think about all the movies of the crucifixion that you've seen and all the scenes uh, of the passion and Jesus is far away from everything all by himself with the two thieves and crying folks and the jeering soldiers Uh, but look at this slide again closely with my circle and the and the trajectory here he's right under the nose of God's house. Jesus and the temple were engaged in a cosmic showdown. As he died, he was looking at that house, and I wonder if Jesus ever remembered, because he knew the scriptures, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. What we do know, if you want to look up Mark 15, 38, as Jesus breathed his last on that old rugged cross, The veil of the temple, which separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else, the place where God dwelt, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which only God can do. Top to bottom, get it? That's an important detail. Top to bottom, in God's final word, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I never wanted this house. I want you. The tabernacle reminds us that God wants a relationship with his children, not a monument. For this reason, we're going to end our time in the wilderness, but we're going to go to another time of wilderness and exile, this time not in the Hebrew scriptures, but rather in the world of Jesus, who came to save us again and again and again, and to remind us again and again what God has always said to his children. We're going to be different for him. We're going to be something else. I've got some discussion questions that I would like to leave you with, and then we'll, we'll continue forward uh, into the world of Jesus. But first, I want to ask you these questions because they'll apply in the Old Testament, and they'll apply at St. Luke's today as well. All right, here you go. First question is this. How can our rituals draw us to God? Think about our church or your your church where you may may happen to go. How do your rituals draw you to God? Here's the second question. How can they get in the way? 
How can your rituals draw us to God? How can, they get in, how can our rituals get in the way? And then finally, what does a relationship with God look like? Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for journeying through the wilderness. And I ask that you join me next week for the world of Jesus in Jericho Road. Amen.